At this time, let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 13 through 25. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. Beginning in verse 13, this is God's holy word. For the promise that He would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of Him whom He believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that He became the Father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, He did not consider His own body already dead since He was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what He had promised, He was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to Him for righteousness. Now it was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and guidance this morning, let's turn back to the passage we read from Romans chapter 4. As we focus our attention really upon the whole passage that we read, but let's zoom in on verses 17 and 18 of Romans chapter 4. Here the Apostle Paul is once again reinforcing by way of argumentation the necessity of understanding that sinners are made right with God exclusively by the perfect work of salvation accomplished by Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God. The righteousness that God has provided by sending His own Son into the world to to live a life of misery and suffering and obedience leading to His death on the cross and eventually to His victorious resurrection. That that the righteousness of Christ might be imputed to every believer. 
that our sins might be reckoned as His, and His chastisement was for our peace. He was wounded for our iniquities. By His stripes were healed, so our sin is transferred to Him. His perfect life of righteousness and His accomplishment and substitutionary suffering of our punishment is imputed to us and we're right with God. And Paul's making the point that that righteousness is received by faith alone. There are no other added conditions whereby we merit or whereby we uh, bring this to pass. It's simply the empty hand of faith receiving Christ's righteousness. That's how we're made right with God. We're justified freely, it says at the end of chapter 3. It's a free gift of righteousness. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God is salvation through Jesus Christ, eternal life through Him. So Paul's making this connection that if our right standing with God is going to be according to God's grace, then it must be received by faith alone. Not even faith as a grace of the Holy Spirit by which we obey the call of the Gospel, the obedience of faith. Not faith insofar as it's our most holy faith, our precious faith. There are many wonderful descriptors and adjectives we can use to speak of what a wonderful thing the gift of faith is. But none of those aspects of faith are involved in faith's role in justification. It is simply an empty hand of faith an ungodly sinner receiving Christ's righteousness from the God who justifies the ungodly. And you can see that verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace. And I'll get to verse 17 and 18 in a second, but let me just say this. Many of the false teachings that Satan has used to corrupt the Gospel throughout history whether it be among the first century Pharisees, whether it be the medieval Roman Catholics and those who opposed the Reformers, whether it be the federal vision in our own day, it seems like they're always hinging their argument on something that goes like this. Well, in saying, in, you know, they would say in denying that it's faith alone in the way that you're speaking of, we're not denying salvation by grace. It's still the grace of God that enables me to bring forth this obedient faith, this penitent, precious, most holy faith that, that God imputes to me for righteousness. It's the Holy Spirit who graciously enables me to live a godly, sanctified life which factors into my right standing with God. It's by grace. But you see, the Apostle Paul knows nothing of a salvation or a justification that is by grace, but not entirely by faith. These two things are inseparable. They go together. When you divide them, you divide the church and you rend asunder the entire Gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, if it is of faith, that it might be according to grace. So the only gospel of grace there is is a gospel where righteousness is received by faith and not by the works of the law. Faith alone. In Christ alone. So that the promise might be sure to all the seed. In other words, even if your righteousness before God was only 1% dependent upon your sanctified faithfulness by the grace of the Holy Spirit, even if 1% of it was dependent upon 
God's grace of sanctification, you would be disqualified because even your best sanctified good works in this life are imperfect. And so the promise would not be sure to all the seed. If the promise is, by God's grace, do good works and be religiously active and so on and so forth, circumcision, the the law of Moses, obey the Ten Commandments, Um, God hands you the football and you go down the field, He'll block for you, but just don't trip and fall or fumble the football. Uh, It's not a sure thing that you're going to cross the goal line. It's not sure. It's not a sure promise because it's in the hands of a bumbling and stumbling sinner. I mean, if Adam in his perfection couldn't obey God and simply ate the forbidden fruit and got us into this mess, how much more are you going to foul it up if even 1% of your right standing with God depends on you? The only Gospel that's by grace is by faith. And that's the only Gospel that involves a promise that is absolutely sure and certain to all of God's believing people. Anything less is uncertain and lacks any sense of assurance because it depends not upon God who is immutable and unchangeable, but depends upon us. And every man proclaims his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. So, beware of that. But moving to verses 17 and 18. He says this, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of Him whom He, Abraham, believed. Who did Abraham believe? He says, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Who contrary to hope, in hope believed. So that He became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. So he's saying Abraham was justified by grace through faith, and that in the same way, all of God's believing people throughout the ages, the elect seed of the the woman, the seed of Christ, the seed of Abraham, are justified in exactly the same way, and that this is something of what God is saying when He says that Abraham will be a father of many nations. That he's the father of all believers. And that this faith of Abraham will be proclaimed in all nations of the world as a witness throughout all the world. And there will be this great harvest of souls of which the Roman believers are one example. Perhaps the first fruits we could say. And that through the proclamation of the true Gospel, the nations of the world will be incorporated into the seed of Abraham who is the Father of all of God's believing people. This is what Paul is saying toward the end of Romans chapter 4. And I think it's significant here that as he brings in Abraham, he begins to expound Abraham's own experience of faith. Remember he spoke in verse 12 of believers as walking in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. And he begins to speak of Abraham's walk of faith, in particular, an aspect of his faith as God proclaimed to him a promise that he'd be a father of many nations. But he was an old man, eventually reached the age of 100 years old. His wife was roughly 90, something like that. And yet he's going to be the father of many nations in a circumstance 
where his body is as good as dead, his wife has been barren throughout her entire life, and humanly speaking, according to the flesh, there's no hope of even having one child, much less being a father of many nations. In fact, you'll recall that in Genesis chapter 16, that Abraham's wife Sarah got it into her mind that perhaps the way in which Abraham could have an offspring would be through her maidservant Hagar, and so she orchestrates this arrangement. Abraham takes on a second wife, and the child of the flesh is conceived. Not the child of the covenant, the child of promise, but rather um, Ishmael, the child of the flesh. And so Abraham and Sarah's faith was struggling at that point as they're trying to produce the result of God's promise not by faith, but by their own works. And so, um, nevertheless, Abraham is faced with this dilemma. God confronts him and says, it's not going to be Ishmael who's going to inherit these things. It's going to come from your own body and from your wife Sarah's womb. And Abraham, we're told, believed. He believed that promise in Genesis 15.6. He believed that promise even after he fouled it up in chapter 16. But he comes back chapter 17. The Lord brings the promise again. And Abraham believes in the presence of Him, verse 17, whom he believed. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. So, Paul is setting before us here the fact that true justifying faith looks to God as the One who does great and mighty wonders. The God who who does those wondrous works, those many miracles, as we sang at the beginning of our service in Psalm, Psalm 105. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now, the reason Paul is doing this is because he wants to highlight the significance of the resurrection of Christ for the believer's justification. And you can see that at the end of the chapter, verse 25, Christ was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now, we might tend to think in the way that we ordinarily look at Christ's saving work, we might tend to think, well, He died for our sins His blood was shed so that we might be made right with God through His obedience unto death. And so He died for our justification and He was raised up in newness of life for our sanctification so that we can be raised up in newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, our larger catechism says that the paradigm for Christian sanctification is dying to sin and self and being raised up to newness of life and new obedience through the death and resurrection of Christ. And so we might associate the resurrection with sanctification. And of course, we're going to do that. Paul's going to do that when we get into chapter 6. But here he's saying that both the death and the resurrection of Christ were necessary for our justification and for our right standing with God. In other words, the believer's justification hinges not only upon Christ's perfect life and sacrificial death, but also upon His resurrection from the dead. Now, why is it that Christ's resurrection was necessary for our justification? I recall in uh, 
Sabbath school, Sunday school as a child. Uh, I think it was in, in junior high. We had a teacher uh, who was teaching us the Bible, and he was, he had, I think he'd been to Bible college or something, but he was trying to tell us that uh, Christ didn't technically need to be raised from the dead in order for us to be made right with God. Now, he believed in the resurrection of Christ. I'm not quite sure why he kept insisting on this, although having been to Bible college myself, it is an odd thing that in evangelical circles, Bible colleges in particular, uh, there is this odd uh, opinion that circulates. And I'm not sure uh, who first introduced this into evangelical thinking, but don't be surprised if you run into uh, people in the, the world of uh, Bible college and, and Bible scholarship who might try to argue this. But, but th- this is a huge problem because our justification, according to Paul, hinges not only upon Christ's death, but upon His resurrection. Now, in one sense, you can understand why people might take the statement in John chapter 19 where Jesus says, it is finished. And they would say, you see, Jesus has finished the work of redemption and therefore His resurrection or anything that comes after that point is not necessary for our justification. But of course, He said it is finished at a point where He had not even died yet. So if you take that argument to the logical conclusion, now His death isn't even necessary for our justification. So... There goes that consideration out the window. But um, clearly Jesus is saying that He'd finished everything up to that point and then He would give His life as a ransom for many and that that would be the consummation of His obedience unto death. But His resurrection is still necessary and significant for our justification in a few senses. First, it indicates God's acceptance of his sacrifice, God's acceptance of his sacrifice. And so you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, the mystery of godliness. Paul says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. If your translation doesn't say God there, you can Pick up the Pew Bible, page 1054, and uh, you may want to think about a new translation. But God was manifested in the flesh, that's speaking of Jesus, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So He was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit. Now that word justified is meant to indicate that His claim to be the Savior, to be the Son of God, to be the One who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that claim was vindicated. And it was vindicated at His resurrection where He was declared to be the Son of God and exalted as the Son of God with power. Romans chapter 1. In the resurrection of Christ, He was justified. Not in the sense that we're justified where our sin is taken away and we're declared righteous in in our mediator, but Jesus in Himself completed His obedience, offered up Himself as an acceptable sacrifice, obedient unto death on the cross, and the Father was justifying Him. Remember in Psalm 22, it's prophesied that they'll mock Him at the cross. He trusted in God, but it's all for naught. 
And uh, God, you know, if God were with him, God would save him and he'd come down off the cross. Well, Jesus is justified in the Spirit when the Spirit of God raised him from the dead. Or if you like, according to his divine spirit as the second person of the Trinity, he raised up himself. There's debate over this. But the point is, it's in his resurrection that he's vindicated and that his claims and even his righteousness are seen to be what they are. True claims, perfect righteousness, the only Savior of sinners. God has accepted His sacrifice. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, Even Psalm 2, uh, which says, this is my Son. Today I have begotten Him. The New Testament quotes that repeatedly in connection with the resurrection where that's manifested. That yes, It vindicates His claim He is the Son of God and He is the Savior. So it shows that so that we can know for certain and have assurance that Jesus is who He says He is. His righteousness is perfect. And all who are in Him by faith are justified in Him and through Him. 1 Peter 3.18 is a helpful cross-reference to confirm this. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So you see, justified in the Spirit is just Paul's way of expressing the role of the Spirit in His resurrection. He's justified in the Spirit when He's made alive by the Spirit. And when we think of the justification of Christ, of course, we have to be very careful because there are uh, false teachers who will use this concept to make a mess of the gospel. But in this limited sense, we can speak of the justification of Christ and therefore by derivation, by application, the justification of the believer. And to demonstrate this, we go to Isaiah 50 verses 7 through 9. This is a passage which speaks of Christ. Uh, Earlier in the chapter, uh, he says, verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. As Psalm 40 says, ears the Lord has dug open for me. He, He hears and obeys. He says, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. This is the one from whom men hid their faces, Isaiah 53, but he hid not his face from shame and spitting. Now listen, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. You see that in Luke 9 when he's going to the cross, going to Jerusalem. He sets his face toward Jerusalem. I have set my face like a flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. So he says, even though the felt sense of God's presence is taken away on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet by faith he knows that God is everywhere present and that God will be faithful to vindicate Him, to justify Him through the resurrection. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? 
let him come near me. Surely the Lord will help me, and who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So he's saying, all my enemies are going to die. I'm going to be raised up into uh, eternal glory and incorruption. But notice the language. He's the one who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Who will condemn me? Now, isn't it interesting when Paul wants to speak of the believer's justification in Romans chapter 8, that he uses this same language that our Lord Jesus uses in Isaiah in speaking of His resurrection. Paul uses the same language in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? Do you see that? The one who justifies me is God. Who is the one who contends? Who is the one who condemns? This is Isaiah 50 language. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So he uses the same language. If you have a cross-reference in your Bible, almost certainly it's going to take you back to Isaiah 50, verses 7-9. through When Christ was vindicated, His saving work on our behalf was vindicated. When Christ was justified in the Spirit at the resurrection, that forms the basis of our justification as those with whom God is also well pleased. And this is why when certain false teachers mixed and mingled in the churches of Corinth, denying the bodily resurrection of believers and therefore casting doubt on the bodily resurrection of Christ, the Apostle Paul was livid and he addresses it at length in one of the longest chapters of his epistles, 1 Corinthians 15, where he deals with the centrality of the resurrection of Christ for our justification. 1 Corinthians 15, and let me just start at the end of the chapter, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's referring to this prophecy, I think, from Hosea. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? And he's saying that through the resurrection of Christ, the sting of death is taken away. What's the sting of death? Our sin. And what's the strength of sin? The law. So in Christ's resurrection, the Father is again confirming His acceptance that Christ has taken away our sin and has fully satisfied the law. And so in His resurrection, it is confirmed for every believer that we no longer have to fear death and there will be no sting of death, no condemnation in death, no guilt and misery and torment in death and in eternity. Now, if you go earlier in that chapter, Paul emphasizes how important, how important belief in Christ's resurrection is for the justified believer. Verse 12, now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, 
How do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And I think of my Sunday school teacher. Well, I guess we're still saved, right? We're still okay. But no. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. See, if the tomb isn't empty, your faith is empty. Your religion is empty. Your eternity is empty. Your life is empty. Christ is not risen. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. You see Paul's theological argumentation here. Sharp as attack, he cuts to the heart of it, and he says, listen, uh, based on your theology, it implies Christ didn't rise from the dead, and if that's the case, then the entire New Testament falls to pieces. What's the point? Because that's the central claim of the New Testament, that Christ rose from the dead bodily, physically, historically. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You see, there's the connection to justification. The sting of death remains in you The expectation of death and judgment to come and the wrath of God remains with you and you're still in your sins if Christ's sacrifice was not accepted and demonstrated at the resurrection. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most Pitiable. He says we're worse than the atheist. We're worse than anyone. We're the most pitiable and miserable, miserable creatures on planet earth if Jesus Christ did not visibly, physically, historically, bodily rise from the dead. So our justification, if not the entire Christian life, is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that He defeated death. As Acts 2.24 says, death couldn't possibly hold Him in its clutches, in its grip. And Acts 17, when Paul preaches the Gospel in the uh, Areopagus, Mars Hill, in Athens, Greece, to the Stoic philosophers, when he preaches to them, he doesn't directly mention Christ's death, interestingly. But in chapter 17, verse 31, he says, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So the only reference to Christ's death in that evangelistic sermon, or at least Luke's summary of it, is in mentioning that he died in connection with him being raised from the dead. God has given us assurance of all these things, of every truth of His Gospel. He's given us assurance by raising Jesus from the dead. His divine acceptance. And also, this was necessary. The raising of Jesus from the dead was necessary for our justification because it was necessary for His bodily ascension. His bodily ascension. Now, the... the, bodily ascension of Jesus Christ is a truth of the Scriptures that really should get a lot more press than it does. It's not recognized. It's not talked about. It's not celebrated. 
uh, in Christian circles as much as various other less significant aspects of the life of Christ. Now, of course, we're not condoning man-made observances of the, the you know, Roman Catholic holy days and the church calendar or anything like that, but it is interesting that many Christians celebrate Christmas to commemorate Jesus' birth, but few celebrate Ascension Day. Um, maybe because people don't exchange gifts, I don't know. But for some reason, we put more emphasis on His birth, less emphasis on His bodily ascension to the right hand of God where He ever lives to intercede for us. Now again, this needs to change. Not in terms of observances, but in terms of recognizing that Christ's bodily ascension is vital. It is vital. It is necessary for our justification to apply to us and to be maintained for us and for every aspect of the Christian life. And if he wasn't raised, he wouldn't have ascended. Uh, When he ascended, he presented himself before God on our behalf. So he consummated and brought to completion his saving work in that sense, just as the high priest would offer the sacrifice and shed the blood and then sprinkle it When he went into the most holy place of the tabernacle or of the temple, he would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, to consummate that atoning sacrifice, to present it before God. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, as both the priest and as the sacrifice, presented his finished work before the Father in heaven, and he did it in his ascension to the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. In other words, God created the heavens and the earth. Not this part of the creation, the earth, but the highest heavens. Christ ascended there as our great high priest into that perfect tabernacle, not an earthly tabernacle or temple, but into God's most holy place at His throne in heaven. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, says the Lord. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. See, this is vital even for our eternal redemption that He presents Himself and His sacrifice being accepted, He is then glorified in heavenly glory. He presents Himself in His resurrected body with His wounds and His blood having been shed. He's accepted. He's glorified, anticipating our glory to come. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Again, it's all in connection with Him presenting Himself. That's how we're cleansed, and that's how we're equipped to serve the living God. Also, later in that chapter, verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So, this idea of His work being vicarious, substitutionary, 
that He's doing something for us. This continues in His intercession at God's right hand where He ascended to rule and reign and to intercede as our great high priest. He's appearing for us. Not that He should offer Himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, at the end of the ages, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So He appears. And He appears in heaven for us. To intercede for us. To apply His sacrifice for us. Acts 5.31 tells us that Christ, having been raised and then ascended into heaven did so for a very important reason with respect to the application of His redemption to His elect. Acts 5.31 Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So, here you have the Lord Jesus. He's ascended into heaven. He's not just a priest interceding for His people but He is a Prince and a Savior, conquering the hearts of His people to Himself through His victorious Gospel as the risen Savior in heaven, giving repentance to His elect, bestowing the forgiveness of sins through the preaching of His Gospel and through the work of His Holy Spirit. Christ is conquering the world. And that's why the book of Acts begins by reminding us that Jesus' work as our mediator didn't end at the end of the Gospel of Luke, but Luke continues it on. He says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Friends, He's still doing and He's still teaching, even today. And He's ascended as the risen, exalted Prince and Savior, saving sinners, even as He poured out His Spirit at Pentecost and saved 3,000 people in one day. Uh, and, and then he, I've already mentioned this, but he intercedes for us. Uh, as our larger catechism says, he intercedes for us in our humanity, right? He, he's flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone. In our nature, it says, he intercedes for us. So that, and this is from the larger catechism, one of the most beautiful phrases in all the Westminster Standards notwithstanding our daily failings. Don't tell me Westminster isn't pastoral. It's pastoral. Uh, Notwithstanding our daily failings. He applies redemption to us every single day by His Spirit. He, He ensures God's mercy and favor toward us. God's acceptance of us, even our sin-stained, meager, weak, beggarly efforts to advance His glory. He accepts our persons, our services. Christ intercedes for us, notwithstanding our daily failings. Hebrews 7, 15 and 16. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek, he's the one... In Abraham's day, the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, king of peace, a picture of Christ yet to come, 
whom David latches onto in Psalm 110, saying, you are a priest forever, speaking of the Messiah, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so Paul here says, it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. There's another reference to the resurrection of Christ. The power of an endless life. He's raised from the dead, never to suffer corruption again. It goes on in the same chapter. Verse 24. Precious words. But He, because He continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us. By the power of an endless life, He ever lives to intercede. He ever lives to guarantee God's gracious mercy towards you every single day Dear believer, notwithstanding your daily failings. Getting back to Romans, Paul reflects on this in Romans 5, verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So in other words, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for His enemies. He died for wicked sinners. But the fact is, if He was willing to show us that kind of mercy, if He was willing to demonstrate that kind of love for us in our sinful rebellion, in our wickedness, in our godlessness, bearing our sins in His body on the tree, all of our sin laid upon Him, the iniquity of us all, if He was willing to love us and help us and do all of that for us in our sinful estate, in our rebellion, in our enmity against Him, as it were, spitting in His face and denying Him and rejecting Him. If He was willing to do that, how much more now that He's conquered death, He's sitting at God's right hand, He's given us the forgiveness of sins, He's granted us new hearts, He's united us to Himself by the Holy Spirit, and He's now interceding for us. He's for us, not against us. How much more are we going to be saved and delivered every single day from the wrath of God and saved every single day from the world, the flesh, and the devil? If He saved us in our enmity and hatred, how much more now that He's made us beautiful in His sight? How much more now that He... Uh, is exalted to God's right hand. He will save us through His daily intercession, notwithstanding our daily failings. So the resurrection of Christ makes all of these things possible. And therefore, true justifying faith includes a genuine conviction that Jesus Christ is not merely the crucified Savior, but also the risen Lord. It's not enough to say Jesus died and isn't that a wonderful picture of sacrifice? Doesn't that really confirm all of His teachings about turning the other cheek? And doesn't that make Him a a religious teacher with some credibility because He suffered and went through all of that? 
if you don't also believe in His literal, physical, bodily resurrection, there is no Gospel. And your faith is empty. It's not true faith, it's empty faith. Because again, what is faith in terms of justification? It's an empty hand reaching out and taking hold of the fullness of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't taken hold of Christ as the risen Savior for your justification, then your hand is empty, your faith is empty, and you are of all people the most pitiable because you have no hope. The world for you, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, the world is just unending darkness. That's all it is. Uh, This world is just a random chance universe that has no compassion, no pity. It's all darkness. It's all hopelessness. In Dante's Inferno, he says that when people enter into hell, they look at the back at the gate of hell and it says, abandon all hope here. Well, we can take it one step further. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, you can abandon all hope right now. You might as well get it over with. Because if there is no resurrection of Christ, in other words, if this world is just unending life and misery and death, and that's all it is, and the cycle keeps going, and it's, you know, we, can, we can sing about it with these um, uh, sort of romantic, uh, and I use that in the classical sense, these kind of uh, r- romantic songs which uh, meditate and reflect, you know, the circle of life. But my friends, at the end of the day, it's a circle of death. It's a circle of death. Life ends in death. And if that's the end, if that's all that this world is, is one big circle or cycle of death. And it's not just at a basic human level. In some sense, the human life is just a microcosm of a universe that randomly sprang into existence at a big bang and is eventually going to fall prey to entropy and fall apart at the seams and cease to exist. You're living in a world of darkness and misery and emptiness. That's all you have. Apart from this glimmer, this ray of hope, this light in the darkness, this resurrection of Christ which says there is a God and He is present. And it's not just life, death, life, death. You go back to Genesis 5 and Adam lived so many years and then he died. And Seth lived so many years and then he died. And even Melchizedek, 969 years and then he died. And you can say with with all the scientists of this world, yes, and you could even write that obituary of the universe. And the universe existed for however many bazillion years, and then it died. But you see, the resurrection of Christ says there's something more. There's life after death. There's life that has defeated death. There's light in the darkness. There is a living hope. There is a living hope. And of course, we can't help but note that that phrase comes to us from a place where where we can really have an opportunity to reflect on the meaning of what what we're talking about here. Because it comes to us from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Peter, and uh, there's much more I have to say here. We'll just take it up next time. 
But if you know anything about the Apostle Peter at the time of Christ's death, he had boasted prior to the Lord's arrest and trial and conviction and crucifixion, he had boasted that he would die with Christ. He, he had boasted previously that he was the greatest in the kingdom over against the other disciples. He said, if all the other ones fail you, Lord, I will not fail you. I will even go to prison or to death with you, for you. He proclaimed foolishly, trusting in himself, proclaimed his own strength as he understood it. And he fell and great was his fall because he followed the Lord at a distance. He was scattered when they arrested Jesus. He followed at a distance. Uh, the apostle John, probably we think it's John, led him into the house of the high priest and he sat in the courtyard by the fire and three times he denied that he even knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Three times. Now we should not underestimate the fear, uh, the, the legitimate threat that was present there for Peter. Uh, you know, people can sometimes trivialize it and say, well, a little girl came up to him and, and he was afraid to talk about Jesus. Well, that's not exactly what we're talking about here. There was a threat to his life. Let's understand that before we get, you know, we, we turn into Mr. High and Mighty. And No, this was a real threat. But he denied Jesus three times. And the third time, Jesus looked at him. And it was excruciating for Peter. Jesus looked at him. And the, the rooster crowed confirming the prophecy that Jesus made that he would in fact deny the Lord three times. And Peter went out from there and wept bitterly, filled with misery and disgust at himself, filled with despair, filled with guilt. And then as he's no doubt paying some attention from a distance to what's happening, Jesus is convicted. And Jesus is led out. And he's tried again and Pontius Pilate, so on and so forth. And he's scourged and he's whipped and he's made unrecognizable and he's nailed to the cross and he's hoisted up for all to see. And Peter denied him and he's never going to get another chance. That's it. He failed. And Jesus is dead. And he's taken off the cross and put in the tomb. And you don't see Peter trying to bury him or trying to apply the spices to his body or petitioning for his body. Peter is in utter despair and hopelessness. His hope is dead. He has nothing. He's lost Jesus. He's lost all hope in himself, which is a good thing, but he's in utter misery and emptiness until the Lord rises again. And the Lord tells the women at the tomb, Go to my disciples and, and declare this message, this good news that I've risen from the dead, and tell Peter. Tell Peter. And we're told also that the Lord Jesus not only appeared to all the disciples with Peter present on multiple occasions, but 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he appeared specifically to Simon Peter on another occasion, one of his appearances during the 40 days that separate his resurrection from his ascension. The Lord Jesus Christ was raised, and my friends, with the resurrection of Christ was the resurrection of Peter's hope. His hope was no longer dead. It was a living hope. And so, 
don't just read this epistle of Peter as if it's just, well, it's just words on a page and theological points that are being made. Listen, my friends, I don't doubt that perhaps there were tears staining the original manuscript here as he's writing this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy... You see that? That's what Peter needed. That's what, that's what just died with Christ in his own mind. I thought he was the one. He, he died. It was over. But the abundant mercy... He's begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you have a living hope or is your hope dead? Is the tomb empty or is your faith empty? Is your life empty? As Jesus said to Thomas when he was doubting, do not be faithless, Thomas, but believing. Do not be faithless, but believing. And I just want to close by going back to the language here in Romans 4. Uh, we're going to look next time at Abraham's faith in God's resurrection power. We're going to consider that. But I just want you to meditate. I want to leave you with these references here. Verse 17, in the presence of Him whom He believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. God can give you life just as surely as you're dead, alienated from the life of God. God can give you life and hope and meaning and righteousness and a right standing with Him as His right-hand man, as His own child, as His saint, as His friend, as His servant. God can raise you up. You're nothing. You're dead. You're apart from God's presence. You're without God, without Christ, without hope in this world. But God gives life from the dead calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope Abraham believed. There's no hope in yourself, but there's a living hope. If you would believe in the almighty power of God as evidenced at the resurrection of Christ. Verse 19, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. Don't consider yourself. Sinner, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus Christ. God did not raise Him from the dead and exalt Him at the right hand and write a Bible that on every page speaks of Him so that you could look at yourself. Look at yourself and see your need, but then look to Jesus Christ because you look at yourself, your own body, your own righteousness, your own life, your own self-confidence. It is empty. There's nothing there. If Abraham had looked to his own body, I mean, that's what he did when he ran off with Hagar. Don't look to yourself. Look to God who is almighty to save. Who saves to the uttermost all who come to God through Him. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, You are the God of all the earth. 
And you have manifested your almighty power as El Shaddai, almighty God, here in this world. 2,000 years ago, when you raised up our Savior from the dead, we long to see his face. We long to be conformed to his likeness. And yet, we need not long for his presence, for he is here with us today. And His Word is not far off or across the sea, but it is near to us in our heart and in our mouth. We ask by Your sovereign grace that You would enable us to confess with our mouths that He is Lord and to believe in our hearts that You raised Him from the dead, that we might be saved. In Jesus' name, Amen.